Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Uh, were you born in Cleveland? Yeah. I, I thought it, it, it had been out of the, where you lived, it was 23. 2703. I was born there. You just said it's a, it's a number two hospital. No. Oh, you mean what hospital I was born in? It was number two hospital oh, on Lawton. So but that was my residence. Oh, okay. Of course. Some people were born at home. Oh, no, I wasn't born at home. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, number two hospital. Yeah. Which later became Homer G. Phillips when they moved out on Whittier. Okay. okay. And um, what, which child were you? I'm it. Oh, you're it? <laughs> yes. You are, you're the yeah, I was the only child. Only child. Mm -hmm. Tell me about your parents. Well, they was from uh, Hennings, Tennessee. That's that same area where Alex Haley and all of them was raised up. Mm -hmm. I think they knew some of them, as a matter of fact. And uh, when they got married, they kind of wanted to move into the big city. thought it would be a better opportunity for me to know that this was strictly country town. And so they moved up here in about 1920, I think it was. And uh, of course, I was born in 23. My father started working at Emerson Electric. At that time, he was down in the 2000 Washington, and he could walk to work. He was about 15, 17 blocks from work. And so, uh, like I said, I come on the scene in 23, started the school, had a good childhood, I thought, very good. Spoiled, one only child. What made it good, and why did you say spoiled? Well, all of the their relatives. My mother was one of 14 kids. She was the only girl, okay? And they all gradually migrated to St. Louis and Chicago. And my father was the oldest of about six or seven kids. And they all eventually come here. And seemed like I was the center of attraction at this, that time. We lived very, very humbly, you know. I think we had no more than three rooms. And periodically, I think I was sleeping on the floor. They made my bed every night. Uh, they had one of those feather mattresses. Little, wasn't as we know it now, with the box springs and all that type of stuff. And I was quite happy with the arrangements. Didn't know anything else. What was in the room? What was the three rooms you Well, we had a bed and a big pot-bellied stove, as I can remember, and they kept the coffee pot on. That darn thing must have stayed on all day. I imagine by the end of the day, it was pretty strong. And uh, in the kitchen, we had a table, and uh, if I can remember correctly, just a little gas stove. They had quick meal gas stove with the legs on them, you know, one of those type things. Nothing fancy, and a little linoleum that you could wear the pattern off pretty easily. My mother was a very clean lady and I remember she's red devil lie to scrub the floors and steps and if we had throw rugs anywhere I took them outside and beat them and uh, stuff of that nature. The bathroom facilities was way out in the back the whole bit. And on one of these uh, when, it, when the temperature would drop below freezing, you had to leave the water running to keep it from freezing the whole bit. And you mean inside? Inside. And 
had to get the stove real hot, and that's why you took your bath. Yeah, tub. Yeah, number three tub. And when I got old enough, uh, I used to build bathhouses around in town and at various places. I used to go to the one there on Jefferson and Spruce on the Pine Street Y, and of course I'd take my showers there, swim. At the, y. at the Y and at this bathhouse. They had a beautiful swimming pool. At Olympic size swimming pool. Yeah, bathhouse number five, Jefferson and Spruce. They built that in about 1935. It was Adams in, Jefferson and Adams, and Adams eventually became Spruce when it passed Jefferson. No, we had the, I used to have, when I got old enough, did run the store to get a can of coal, and you had to put the wick down in there and light it and turn it up, you know, the whole bit. Yeah, and we used for refrigeration in the window, had one of those orange crates like hanging outside the window, and uh, put our milk and stuff like that, whatever little milk we had. At that time, I didn't, I think I drank canned milk most of the time. They mixed it, you know, carnation and uh, I don't know if it was called Kiro syrup and all that type of stuff. But uh, it was a very happy childhood, extremely happy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She did house cleaning, stuff of that nature. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. She, I remember, she worked, if I can remember correctly, her husband, for a lady, her husband was an official with the Kroger Company. Their names was Cantor, C-A-N-T-O-R. And every Christmas, this lady would send me toys, little miniature pinball machines, and periodically, if for some reason I didn't go to school or my mother, had to take me out there, and while she was working, I'd be out there playing. They had children. I can remember playing with them the whole bit. And she rode the streetcar, of course, at that time. They ran real regular. Nobody all had automobiles. It was. You could leave your doors open, windows open. You could go to anybody's house and eat. Always had a meal for somebody. Very trusting. Very religious. My whole family was Baptist. And the church was on Montrose and Market, right in back of the Vashon High School, which is Harrisville now. And uh, I was raised up in that church. But my mother walked from Eugenia, which was about six or eight blocks, uh, up to the church at night, and they had, they'd have prayer meetings and late going-ons, you know, and I walked everywhere, walk up to the Pine Street Y, and all those places. Oh, big part of the community. Oh, yeah, my family. My father was on the usher board. He sung in the choir. My mother was on the usher board. She belonged to the uh, Elks. Uh, and all of those organizations were separate, black and white at that time. And she was very active in that type of thing. And my father used to talk about before he left the South, 
but they had a little uh, marching band. Everybody played them. Nobody could read music. And he played the baritone and the bass horn. And I used to sit around this pot belly stove and I'd hear him talk about it on days it come marching through this little town. And it was something. Oh yeah, had ties. He eventually brought his father up here when he got a little older, and of course, he stayed in the general area, which is now called Martin Luther King, but it was Franklin Avenue then. And uh, I remember my grandfather, very strong man, tall. His name was Merrick Washington Fitzpatrick. Merrick? Yeah, Merrick. A very proud man, and I got in and coming up, I started playing hooky from school and stuff like that, you know. And my dad would put my grandfather on me. He wasn't working, and he'd be there to admonish me at school, coming to and from school. Very strong, proud man. I understand down south, he did all his own farming and everything because he couldn't, at that, that time, we didn't call it that, he couldn't stand the racism. You know, and so he stayed aloft to himself. He was a very, he was a loner, proud, strong guy. He, I mean, he was, he gave respect and he commanded it. And he walked straight and tall and had the gray mustache, you know, very firm, all business and whatnot. Not a lot of education, none of them had it then. But, uh, and my dad was similar to that also. He was pretty much a loner and uh, non-trusting as far as this race stuff go, you know. Well, then, of course, it was a way of life. We had our little areas. I uh, went to a black school, and uh, you couldn't go to any of the white schools. You couldn't participating in the sports, you know, we only had two schools in St. Louis, Vachon and Summer High School, we competed against each other, over to East St. Louis, different stuff of that nature. We had our own swimming pools, and during the summer, mom them, they didn't have uh, babysitters, we all go to the playground, and that's all we did, we'd run track, shoot marbles, the whole bit. And it was just a way of life. I remember when I got my first job, after I'd gotten out of school, and my dad was working for Emerson Electric down here at 2018 Washington, uh, I uh, had taken up machine shop in high school. You know, I could read a micrometer and various gauges and what have you, and I was armed with my stuff. The very first day, I went. my dad said, come down in the morning, I can get you a job. And he was planning on that fall sending me up to Detroit and enroll me in Wayne University with my uncle. And uh, my uncle was doing pretty good up there at that time. So, but I, I was going to work through the summer. And I go down that first day and uh, I step in the employment office and it was just loaded with people. And I was the only black person coming in. And the guy looked up and he said, nothing for color today. You know, and I said, he said, look, I don't have time to uh, fool with you, nothing for color today. I left. 
pretty, you know, downhearted. And so when my dad got home that evening, he said, I thought I told you to come up. I was going to get you this job. I said, I did. The man would even let me talk to him. He said, well, you come up in the morning, because he was a very firm guy. So when I get there the next morning, uh, my dad was standing out there with the personnel director, and he called me. He said, how come you didn't tell me you was Clarence's son? So you didn't give me a chance. And I had my little book, and I was going to show him some of my credentials. And he told me, he said, uh, uh, you won't need any of that. You go to the Porter game, you know, do cleaning. And because everything was separate, the locker rooms and even the sections that you worked in, they were very menial jobs, regardless of your credentials. In World War uh, II was just beginning to break out. So we all had to register for the draft, and I worked there. Well, Emerson at that time, well, then I also got married. When we graduated from high school, my wife was about three months pregnant, and my folks didn't know it. And that was the biggest disappointment to my father, because he was planning on me going up to Wayne uh, that fall. Of course, that was out of the window. And uh, I started working at Emerson, and they ended up ended up getting the largest machine gun turret contract in the world. It was, you know, the war breaking out. And they eventually moved out here at 8100 West Florissant. And we moved out there at that time also, the porters and uh, this, that, and the other. And we wanted some of the skilled jobs where we knew how to run machines and they had a training program and I hope they wouldn't give it to us. And boy, we picketed and everything else and they said no way you got what you're going to get the only thing when president roosevelt broke that fepc fair employment practice bill was they had to give such percentage of job to minorities were blacks and uh that was it we didn't specify what job so they had we had a running battle going so we a bunch of us they didn't give it to us well we did we had a running battle going and we uh, hired two black lawyers, Macklemore and Clymer. They were a heck of a civil rights lawyers at that time. They, they really was instrumental in that 54 desegregation order deal. Well, anyway, we hired them, and they told us to get a petition together. He had notarized and sent it up to Washington to the President's Committee on Fair Employment Practices. And everybody was afraid to start off signing this list you get fired, you know, whatever. So we devised our own self. We drew a big circle on a big piece of paper, and you sign your name anywhere, and they couldn't tell who was the instigator, who was first. And they uh, 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 notarized it and shot it off. About six months later, they said, all colored employees out on the black back platform. What's going on? We go out in the back, and... Uh, they confronted us with this. Why didn't you guys negotiate with us? Say, we'd negotiate and we'd ask you, and the whole bit. And so they said, well, we ain't going to tolerate this stuff, and blah, 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 you know, but we're going to work with you. And they, we formed a committee, a little committee. and and uh, But before then, we'd had a little deal. They had an area roped off for us in the cafeteria, and we resented that. And so we come in the cafeteria and start sitting everywhere, and they rounded us up and 
can fire. They did about eight or ten guys did lose their jobs, and uh, so they uh, said we'll take the rope down, but what we'll do. Uh, just that when you guys go sit, go sit together, whatever, you know, we, we didn't agree to it, and they thought they was going to hold us to it. Young, in our teens, I think I was 17 years old at that time. I've been married 50, almost 53 years. And, uh, was your dad working there? Yeah, he was working, and he wasn't militant at all, and uh, he pretty much backed me in what I did. He said, uh, I guess we didn't have the guts to do anything like that. He said, but you guys got to work. You're going to lose your jobs and whatnot. But he never did downgrade me for it. Well, I had a lot to lose. I had a young family. Sure. Just, I guess, we thought it was an injustice. And you had several people like Paul Robeson and all of them were fighting the system on a national level, you know. What does it do to you? What does it do to you to have all colors come out of the back? It was very degrading, very degrading, but, but it was being tolerated at that time by the various people who had migrated here from the South because it was a way of life. It was a little better than it was in the South, you know. And uh, it was a, it was we had fun. I didn't let it bug me. None of us did. We joked about it, carried little chips on our shoulder, but generally had. Not really, not really. Uh, it didn't interfere with our having fun. I don't mean like it's that. not like these yeah. dudes are now. No, I don't mean like that. Yeah. Didn't carry around a lot of hate and hostility. Just tried to work with the system and in the system. Get a piece of the pie. limited in that I never had aspirations to just, you know, I tell you what I live for and that, that's the reason I can sit back now and, you know, really do good was to raise those five children. I had two jobs and of course if I got a better job that would mean more money that I could plow into my family. And my wife at that time, most black women did domestic work, you know, she refused to do that type. And as things opened up, 
she said she wasn't going to work and raise children anyway. So for the first 15 years of our marriage, she didn't work. And I had two jobs this and the other. We were able to get five children through college, you know, educate them and uh, the whole bit. And it wasn't easy. A lot of people say, uh, well, it was different then. It was tough making $12, $15 a week, the whole bit. But I think that's what was happening during that time. The reason my folks left the South and come here, they wanted something better for me. And I also wanted something better for my children, you know, because I stressed respect, education, 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 respect. If you get in any trouble with any adult, don't you fight the battle. Come let me teach you. Don't you talk back to teachers. Let me. And they got pretty much confidence in me when I would go and size up the whole situation. And sometimes I was on their side, and they saw that, you know. So I considered myself as being a, a good father. I wish I could have loosened up a little bit more. But I had such strong ambitions for them, which they reached the goals, you know, some tremendous goals they have reached. Uh, in later years. But I wish I had loosened up. A little bit then, I was pretty strict. If I said be in by 10, I wanted you there by 10. And uh, I got to know where you're going, all those type things. You don't find anything in bringing in this house, bicycles, whatever, you know. Because those were strict rules of my home, and I brought them up right in that, in that vein. I know my son was playing basketball over at Beaumont High School at that time, and of school out about three and he'd stay there for basketball practice and one day he came about nine or nine thirty I said David where you been and uh, he said oh, I stopped at the pool room now in Van Nevena a lot of my friends do that I said well you're not going to stop there I said because years later years later some of them same guys will be there on that corner at that pool room I said now you, when you leave this house, and that's your choice to stop at that pool room, fine. But here I'm going to put you in a Lincoln, Cadillac, Mercedes, or whatever, if you want that, if that's the life you want, you know. And he told me he was mad at me. And he wouldn't go over Van Avena to go to Beaumont. He'd go over Prairie because his buddies were teasing about it. And he said, you know what, many years later when I come back, uh, they were still hanging around on that corner, winos, the whole bit. You know, I had felt bad about that, and I had a daughter that didn't want to comply with my curfew. Said, whenever we have a party, I'm always the first one to leave. And I said, I'm sorry about that. She said, I just won't go. I said, okay. That lasted a little while. Yeah. 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 But me and my wife was always unanimous. If we had any disagreements, and we were young, we had four kids by the time he was 21 years old. And uh, we would, she'd say, you could kind of loosen up a little bit. And oh, I'd say to her, Boop. we had a solid front in front of the children, you know. Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah, but religious and uh, looked out for my welfare and whatnot. 
I disappointed him in a lot of things as far as the co I didn't get a chance to do any college going until after I got out of the Navy, you know, under the GI Bill and stuff like that. But uh, my dad, that was his strong ambition. That's all he used to talk about. Wanted me to be a doctor. The whole bit. Did he yeah, oh yeah, he lived to see all that. I was working, struggling, but he used to always tell me, he said, see that, you're doing it the hard way. Had to work, go evenings, and all that type stuff, you know. Yeah. And, uh, it's extremely. And my wife, I, said, I think when she finished, right along with one of my kids. <laughs> yeah. Elementary? Yeah, it was one of the new schools that right. we got. It was built, I think, about 1926, somewhere in that range mm -hmm. now. And I started in 28. Mm -hmm. and it was a great school. Had all had the basketball goals out in the yard. We had a principal, John W. Edward Evans. He was a curator up at Lincoln U, up in Jeff City, and a very proud man, too distinguished-looking, heavy voice, and what have you, took pride in it. He'd come to your house, sit on your table, eat or whatever, and was very strong. And the school was completely surrounded. A lot of the houses, there were houses of prostitution, which, you know, I was raised up in it. I didn't think nothing about it. My dad would always downgrade it, but the homes there that you rented was cheap rent. You see, oh, then about eight or ten dollars a month. I know my first house was twelve dollars a month. Of course, I was making thirty-two cents an hour, twelve dollars and eighty cents a week. Well, the school we had very good teachers. Most all of our teachers finished Stowe Teachers College, which now they've merged. The black kids couldn't go out to Hash Teachers College out here on Enright. And of course they had the black college down Pendleton and, boy my memory is fuzzy, Pendleton and uh, Kennedy I think it was. Stowe Teachers College. And it was a long time later they merged. But they got all of their teachers from Stowe or up at Lincoln University, the black university at that time up in Jersey City. You started the day at school mm -hmm. No, my mother fixed me lunch uh, that first day, I remember. Well, then the kids going to kindergarten only one half day. And uh, I stayed about a block and a half from the school. <laughs> Fell out teasing now that took me to school. And and uh, I tell him, I said, you much older than I am. But he was only about two or three years older. And my mother stayed next door, said, take Cliff down with you. And they pointed me back. And nobody bothered children in those days. And so I ate lunch at home. And you talk about latch key. We had that old long skeleton-looking key under a mat. And I'd come in. And my job then as a kid was to empty the pan where the ice had melted. You know, you had to empty that. And then uh, I'd get out and shoot marbles and stuff till they come home. Dinner. With the 
Yeah. We sang the, what's that song? Langs, Langston Hughes wrote the Negro. Yeah. Yeah, we sang that. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, recited the Lord's Prayer and uh, pledged allegiance to the flag. Yeah, of course. Not before every class or nothing like that, but to the assemblies and the auditorium and stuff like that. Oh, no, 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 no. Grade school, oh, yeah, elementary. You Every day, come out in the hall and sort of like a little orientation, get your day started, a little, little pep talk. You know, they said that you guys can't go out the yard during recess or whatever. And it's sing, and they said, let's, let's now get with it. And you go off to your various rooms. Yeah. When did you, uh, when did you know that there were people whose skin color was different than yours? Right, now that's, well, very early on, because my mother would take me downtown, and I knew we couldn't use any of the restrooms or eat anywhere down there, because she give me a little something in the bag and I I found that out very early on and uh, but it didn't bother us it was a way of life and uh, I think when I became really more conscious was when World War two broke out well say about 1938 we started hearing about fascism and Nazism you know, Mussolini, Hitler, and all that bunch, and they were invading this, that, and the other. And the the older people made us conscious of it. They asked us to come and pick it, like the American Theater was downtown at that time. And they wouldn't let us sing a statue like Marian Anderson or Paul Robeson sing at these places. And he started another political party, the Progressive Party. And they would ask a bunch of us youngsters to come down and, and pick at the places. It was fun with us. We was canned signs. And they, was that the NACP? No, that was a progressive party, Paul Robeson. Oh, that was his party. Yeah, he ran for president with Henry Wallace, who eventually became vice president under President Roosevelt. How they get you? We didn't know anything. They'd come by to Y That's or anywhere and say, hey, let's go down and pick at the mm -hmm. American Theater. Yeah, I didn't know anything about that. Or, or lay in at Woolsworth. You couldn't sit at their lunch counters. Let's go down and do this. Uh, or well, they'd run us away, of course. Uh, a great number of times with the co cooperation of the policemen, you know. And you laughed about it and come away. We tried to, I stayed about four or five blocks at one time from the Fox Theater. We couldn't go there, you know, and uh, we'd go up sometimes and try to go in and they'd kick us out. Did you wonder why you couldn't go there? Yeah, black. We had various sayings about, you know, if you're black, you got to get back, and we'd laugh about it, stuff of that nature. What's underneath all that? Now, you mean? Then, uh, now, anytime. What's it was, it was frustrating, but again, it was a challenge. It was a definite challenge.
thing. Uh, we had pride. We had fun. Of course, when you hit that teenage, you wanted to kind of make yourself presentable. But we had some leaders who told us to carry ourselves in a dignified fashion. Give respect and you'd receive it. So consequently then, I guess that is why we wasn't militant. Like you know, the shooting and all that type of stuff and whatnot. But we picketed, we petitioned, and uh, go home and laugh about it. Stuff of that nature. At the circumstances and situation, not necessarily at them. You know, we, it wasn't against a people per se, it was against the system. And here's what you got to realize there was a tremendous amount of white people on our side that helped us. I boxed at a, a Catholic church, all the nuns were white, St. Elizabeth and the 2700 there on Lawton. And uh, down at a uh, church there on 18th and Lucas, same thing. They had dances, boxing, and whatnot. And they instilled a lot of pride in us. I don't think we took it as a just an individual race-hate type thing. We, t we took it as a system type thing. When I was out at Emerson, and we were constantly fighting for dignity, jobs, even on the unions, we paid the same dues, but they had us in a miscellaneous category. In other words, when layoffs come, a black could only bump another black, even though they had more seniority, anything, than whatever, you know. And uh, the toilet had a big sign that colored growing in our toilet, and we constantly took it down and destroyed it. And, you know, and they called us on in the personnel office and fought it, but they didn't fight each other. No, no. They didn't know who did it in the first place. They didn't know who did it. That's what I wanted to ask if Lady brought it up. Uh, mm -hmm. When you were doing the elements uh, at Emerson, was it were you war partying? Oh, yeah, intricate part. I think I was a shop steward there for a little period before I left and went work for the government. So was, you, was that segregated? Or? The union? Mm -hmm. You were in the same local, but you were segregated to, an, uh, to a degree. When you went for if there was an opening, did that come through the union or did that come through Emerson? Yeah. Emerson. So they mm -hmm. And they control, you had the Porter Gang and all the, the service type jobs mm -hmm. you mainly had. But eventually they did have to open up to us after we sent that petition to Washington and they were mandated so they trained us, sent us to working in a machine shop at Vashon High School at night after we had worked 10 hours a day out there and then with, on the machines we had went through high school with and so when we come back and got the jobs they cleared out a whole section for us. I think we had six blacks on the day shift six blacks on the night shift, you see. So they gave you a better job that you were supposed to Oh, a tremendous job, yeah. Gave us a section, but they took the job away from some white people that was on that job and moved them to another section to, to, to make, and so I know we'll forget the night. Yeah, I know we'll forget the night that I went to work 
there when we, when we went on those machines, the other whole plant stopped. They refused to work, and we have those jobs. And I went to the union guy. I said, hey, we're part of the union, too. He said, we aren't complaining about you having those jobs, but you took it away from these other guys, and they started us at a higher rate of pay than they were making. In other words, they just, it wasn't a high, high, but the entrance level, they didn't start us because we was already working there, you see. So your raise was higher than the money that the white man had No, what they started with. In other words, say if the starting salary was a dollar an hour, they started us at about a dollar a quarter because we were already employees there working, you see. Where the other yeah, at the entry. But that, they say that's what it was, but that wasn't what it was. They put us on those jobs. And so they uh, announcement come on. Uh, Stuart Symington was the president out there at that time. An announcement come on the loudspeaker said everybody that quit work here is not going to get paid. And these people are going to work. And uh, we worked at night and. Finally, you'd hear machines start up gradually again. Then they, so they were going to fire the white man. Oh, they couldn't fire me. It was about what, about four or five thousand. But I mean, that's what they, they said. said they weren't going to pay them. Oh, yeah, well, the whole time you sitting there not not doing your job, you don't get paid. One of those things, and they gradually went back to work. They did that all over all the time. And we had their. They were doing. It was sprouting up all over the country in different ways like that. And uh, it wasn't until I left there that they integrated the restrooms and had people working in the personnel department, tool and die makers and stuff of that nature. I was working at Emerson Electric. I mean, I was working at the post office for about three years. And Chester Stovall from the Urban League called me one day and, and said, you know those jobs that you had out at Emerson? See, when I went into the Navy, I was a machine operator, but when I got out, I went back to the Porter game. Okay, the war was over, and uh, I go to the VA and everybody else, else in, I should be put back on my job. And uh, they said, no, all they have to give you back is a job you held before the war. That was a wartime job you had, and yet the white counterparts were still on that job. Some retired from it, you know. And I had his family here, so I took the federal exam, and I went on work for the government. And so he asked me about coming back, and I said, no way. And I stayed with the government for 38 years. Well, yeah. they was going to offer me something better, but I wouldn't leave the security. I needed security. And uh, I didn't, I thought at that time I'd possibly be harassed or something of that nature, you know. Just didn't want to take the chance. What Union representative for your for your section. Instead of everybody going up, you go and somebody gets in trouble, you handle grievances and stuff of that nature. Did you feel that Lincoln gave you a good basic education? Absolutely the best. The best. We had the best teachers in that 
they were the best jobs could be had by black people then, the teacher and the doctor, the lawyer, you know, professional people like that. And uh, they had master degrees and the whole bit, and they took pride. They were the pride of the neighborhood. They would go home with you. They commanded respect. And if they sent for your parent, your parent come and might beat your little butt right there in school, you know. It's the whole thing you've turned around now, it appears. They had pride. I had a daughter that taught school for almost 10 years, and she left because uh, couldn't get parental cooperation and all that type of stuff. Did your mom and dad give you a spanking? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yes. They'd call it child abuse now, I imagine. They were hurt when I did something wrong, and they beat my butt didn't kick and stomp me or anything like that. And my dad would even, if I'd come in late or something, make me go to bed without eating. And mom, I remember I was sneaking in, bringing it to me, you know. And a lot of respect and pride. And I respect them for that. What did you all get to do in the city? I mean, did you pray for it? Did you partake in it? It came out through our neighborhoods. Yeah. And we had to draw a float of what have you the next day in school, how we perceived it. Mm -hmm. yes. yes. Didn't know any better till we got a little older and started building up resentments, you know, against the the system for what it represented, you know. I never did have any of that deal. You stayed back, you know, the ones. You knew what your place was to an extent, and you pretty much respected it. But we had fun. We had several big bands here in town, and they, we had a gorgeous dance hall there on Ewan and Olive, the Castle Ballroom. And they let us have the boat on Monday nights down on the river to St. Paul. That was Black Night. And, uh, we enjoyed ourselves tremendously. We had softball leagues, baseball, football teams, the whole bit. Good yeah, and in the neighborhoods too. That was the, the programs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you had neighborhood politicians who, who would give what they call a block dance. They'd rope off a whole block, get a band out there, and uh, had beer. The, the politicians? Uh -huh. Sure. Jordan Chambers, Billy Moran, Quidney Clark, Langston Harris, Harrison, Langston Harrison. That's how we got our memberships to the Y. We'd go by and see one of the politicians, and they'd give us a card to take to the Y. Everybody loved George Chambers. Yeah, yeah. Pop Chambers, they called him. And he was caught up in the system in that he had control of all the menial jobs. He could place you as a nurse attendant, custodian in some of the buildings, hospitals, and stuff like that. He could get a limited amount of people on the police force and stuff of that nature. Yeah.
for about three months. And then I go in the post office. And the post office was almost the same way at that time. Shortly before I come into the post office, they had problems because they had an area set aside for them in the cafeteria. And they had just one guy, hit who he later became, a, I think he became a state legislator or something, I don't know, late in later years. But he refused to move, and this guy was going to pick up his tray and he hit him. And uh, Bernard F. Dickman, our ex-mayor, was a postmaster. And he helped turn all that stuff around. You had areas that you sit in. You had jobs. You couldn't work in none of the offices, personnel departments, anything. That, in other words, promotion was almost out of the question. If you come in as a letter carrier or a mail handler or a clerk, that's the way you retired. And so we formed an organization called the National Alliance, National Association of Postal Employees. I, I can National Alliance, and we fought for upward mobility jobs. And I think they broke them loose in about, God, it must have been around 53, when, when 53, 47, mm -hmm. something of that nature. And we gradually started to move, and we fought, 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 fought. And when I was a union representative there, he used to have to go to Washington uh, to for our legislation, for our raises and working conditions and stuff like that. Our committee from the union, the National Association of Letter Carriers. Did, did, and so was that, that was black? No, no, that was black mixed. That was, yeah. That was mixed. Mm -hmm. The Postal Alliance was black. Yeah. And we fought for equality in the union and on the jobs. Black letter carriers no, no. They'd send it anywhere. But they primarily would some way work you into the black neighborhoods. But you were supposed to go anywhere. When they got stuck, they'd send you anywhere. Because I, I had gone to places, and I didn't have any bathroom facilities. I knocked on the door, and I asked a lady, uh, could I use the bathroom? And she slammed it and told me no. You know, stuff like that. And. Uh, it was tough. I remember, right, you know, it was a Bettendorf's on Clayton, what was that, Clayton and Handley. Okay, cross from there, Davis comes right in there. Okay, here's what happened. I was so cold one day, I was froze. And this had to be in the late 40s. And uh, there's a little vestibule there. And it had a radiators on each side in the vestibule area. But you pushed the mail through. I can remember this vaguely. Now. I'm, yeah. No, this was a home, a residence, if I'm not mistaken. Right off of Dave, on Davis, somewhere up in there. And when I pushed the door, the door kind of opened. And I stepped in. And I was just shaking like a leaf on a tree. And the lady come and opened the door to get her mail. And I was standing, kind of frightened. Her, you know. She said, oh, mailman, you are cold. She called me in. They had maid or something of that nature and said, give him some coffee and the whole bit. And Because uh, about three days before then, I was working out of the Clayton Post Office, and they had carried us out on the truck. And I worked so hard, I 
didn't have the proper clothes on, I got cold. I got back on a bus and come back to the post office to quit. I was going to resign. I told him I was frozen. I couldn't finish the route. And this manager, beautiful guy, he said, nah, he said, sit down, don't quit. said, uh, when some of the other sub-carriers come in, I'll send them out with you and you guys finish. So I sit there and they all come in. They were froze, temperature down near zero. And uh, they were all white, of course. And they said, I want you to go out and help this fella finish that route. And boy, they were mad at me. We were in the back of the truck and they was taking out. We almost got to fighting. And uh, eventually we got to be very good friends in later years. We laughed about that. They took me out on the route and then, then later he sent me back downtown to work. And I'll never will forget the boss come up to me. I wanted to make a lot of hours. You got paid by the hours, no overtime, no time and a half, anything of that nature. He come up to me. I told him I need to work a lot of hours. I got kids and I need money. And he said, okay, I can put you on a route. This fellow's on sick leave. See, but it's a lot of prostitutes and pimps. And it's rough. He said, I won't care how much time it takes you to finish the route. Just finish it every day. And you can work on it till he comes back to work. And it was on the route I was born on. Oh, Just like doing the, as I always say, like doing the rabbit in the briar patch. <laughs> yeah, I was a mischievous boy coming up in the neighborhood. So the toughest time I had was uh, people said, hey, here's Kitty's boy, Ken Mayo. Mama, come here, here's Cliff Ken Mayo. And, and the, uh, Boy, I thought you'd been in jail by now, and all that type of stuff. And I stayed on that route till they towed the Mill Creek area out. That man retired, and I bid it on it and got it. You wanted it? Yeah, and because I didn't have much competition, and many people wanted it. It was a rough neighborhood, a whole bit. But, yeah, but not compared to neighborhoods now. Yeah. No, they were saying, see, the Sixth Ward, that's where it was the Sixth Ward, most of Mill Creek was a power base, politically, and famous bar, sticks, all those were in the Sixth Ward, too. So whoever, whoever got elected, no, no, Chambers in the 19th. This was Archie Blaine, uh, another alderman named Oliver, and these guys I named Billy Moran, Quinley Clark, all those guys control that Sixth Ward. And uh, it was lucrative for money. They got permit signed and they made money out of it. You know, I, you talk about corruption then, they let stuff go on. It was baby stuff compared to what they got now. You know, I remember even in the earlier years, all the bootleggers and whatnot was in there selling alcohol and water. I remember 1933 when they repealed prohibition and the booze come back in, that cut off a lot of their revenue because the police and everybody else was looking the other way, you know, stuff of that nature. People thought about it being torn down. They didn't think. 
because they were putting up some of these housing projects. They were new homes. Some people had never been in a new home, of course, and they told they'd get preferential treatment and move into these places, Pruitt Igo and all those places. So, and the politicians went for it also. And so it, it they mildly complained, but. I was sick. <laughs> they took my rot out because going to work was like, they was paying me to go play every day. Yeah. yeah. But the people, see, nobody had ownership. No, the big realty, I remember the big companies in were Bruni Realty and uh, who I remember, and paid eight or ten dollars a month rent and the houses had fallen down, you know. I think it was sort of disastrous myself. In retrospect, I didn't at the time think that. It uprooted, you know, I think roots is important. You knew everybody in the neighborhood and you got along real well. You had neighborhood pride to an extent. Your churches had roots, uh, the Pine Street Y, our two schools, Lincoln Waring and uh, the Shine High School, all those, the Lowe's on the south side. Uh, and you had a pretty good deal of industry in that area also. You had laundries and I know you had paint companies and different things. St. Louis Dairy down there on Walnut. Peevely, yeah, yeah. And uh, Market Street was a shopping place. Started Jefferson and go out to uh, Ewing with all stores. They had uh, grocery stores in each each block, Leader Market and all those stores. Lincoln, you had taverns, you had stores. And then when the black businessmen got together and built a people finance building there where E.G. Edwards is located now, they had a a roof garden dance floor was fabulous, and doctor offices, dental offices, barber shops, eating places in there. I remember Wimpy's Inn was in there, and that's where Joe Lewis and different people would come to eat. And uh, a lot of people had pride. You didn't have the killing and stuff going on now. It sort of made it topsy turvy in my estimation. It made a difference in all the cities all over the country. You, your roots are gone. They could have made it better down there. It would have been great. But that was prime area, prime land eventually, and you see who's taking it over now. Some of the largest companies in the world, you know. And uh, one of the areas where I live now, they got the uh, Marriott Courtyard down there on the market. E.G. Uh, Edwards, man of everything in sight in that general area. Did you have heroes when you were Yes. Joe Lewis. Everybody. Before then, Jack Johnson, the fighter, the whole bit, and uh, Step and Fetch It, some of the guys in Shuffle, until 
some of the more intelligent, educated people who uh, said, them guys is wrong portraying us like that. They shouldn't. And then, of course, you boycott Amos and Andy and all those people. We didn't think nothing about it. But in time, it, it was the complete revolution. We protested it, against it. And uh, they wanted to break out of that ghetto. We didn't know that we were poor. I got a new pair of shoes every other year, whenever, and enjoyed it. It didn't take much to make you happy. No. Neighborhood, yes. Yeah. They didn't call them ghettos then, they called them slums. Yeah, that's right. And they and they called the owners slum lords and what have you. And you you moved on them when living conditions had unbearable, you couldn't go to court to get nothing done, you know, windows broken out. So that, The renters, God, I can't remember them. I knew all the store owners. I, I played with their children. Just got Harry's Market, but Layton's Drug Store, and uh, uh, Tanaka. I never forget. I played with those kids. Joe? And the 2600, they had a restaurant. 2600, 2628 Market. And when the war broke out, they put them all in a camp. Did you know, did you know a Joe Tanaka? I possibly did. He had a, did his father have a little restaurant? 2628 Market. What's it called? Tokyo. Tokyo. Yeah, I eat many meals in there. Used to sell rabbit and rice. Right. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I interviewed Mr. Tanaka. Did you? And all the passes, Abraham Pass, and all that owned uh, Independent Fish, which he eventually bought out Melidios. They wanted to be. We played together. Yeah, it was in the twenty-seven forty-two market. Matter of fact, they wanted me to initiate a suit one year. Years ago, uh, some of my uncles that left went to Chicago and different places, they, they hopped the land to get money to leave. And the guy eventually became a landowner. You know, he just took it, acres of it. And so my mother, about in 1937, 39, I can't remember when, hired a black lawyer, and they went down and fought it, and they won the litigation in some fashion. And this guy killed himself. But the family still held hold of it. So when I went back down there in about 1960, 
my cousin, who's about my age, was still living there on the land. They was letting her live on the land, and she was like sharecropping the whole bit. And then I had a new car, and I went down there, you know, and they all thought I'd come down and start litigation. And they put her up. She told me, my cousin, first cousin, said, uh, you didn't come down here to fight anything for this land, because I'll lose my home, I'll lose my money. I didn't come down here for nothing. I just buried my uncle, you know. And word just spread tickled me when I drove up. I'm raised in the city. I'm looking for a street number. And uh, a road gang was digging ditches and stuff like that. And I asked this fellow who was the boss, I said, uh, do you know what street Jeff Estes live on? He, he laughed and said, we don't have no streets around here. But he said, you must be Jeff's nephew from St. Louis. And he told one of the guys, put that shovel down and take him on around at a Jeff's place, and we'll come around and pick you up. And of course, when we get around there, they got food lined up everywhere, neighbors from far and near brother, and all the workers come around and eat and the whole bit. And they all thought I was a threat to come down there and start some litigation for that land again. I said, no, not me. My cousin, she thought, she, I know she kept wanting to get me aside and ask me about that. You said, we'll lose our own money, you know, and all that. Oh, yeah. And so I said, I come here to bear my uncle. That's it. Well, was, was there a big difference between St. Louis and the South? Yeah, a lot of difference. Living conditions were as bad as they was here in the slum neighborhoods. They were, they, well, they were farms down there. No running water. You had the wells and stuff of that nature, you know. So they moved up here, and you had running water. Did have some outside privies and whatnot. And when we stayed close to Union Station, that was heaven. I go down there and use their toilets mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And they build a bathhouse or the Y. I took my showers and everything there. It was a swimming pool. The city under Bernard M. Dickman put it up. Mayor Dickman, who eventually became postmaster, had those built the Gamble Center. They built one out in the West End around Stowe Teachers College, somewhere in that area. And they had an Olympic-sized swimming pool. And during winter, they put a gym floor. We played basketball. They had basketball leagues. And they had crafts and played checkers and kept the kids off the street. What had it? Yeah, just rows and rows of showers and soap. And people from all around would come down there and take showers. And when I never will forget, uh, when I got married and moved into this home in the 2600 Pine, $12 a week, two rooms, and they had a centrally located bathroom on the second floor where everybody from the apartment come in to and uh, I was getting my stuff together to go down to the bathhouse. She said, you're going to take your bath here at home. She got the tea kettle, heated that water, and poured it into that number three tub, got the fire hot, had my long underwear hanging behind it. I hadn't took a bath in the tub since I was a kid, you know, because being in sport, sports, I go to all these places where they had showers. Yeah, and my little daughter, we had to cover her up just like uh, she was sleeping outside. Yeah, 
the ceiling's extremely high, and the, the Bromo Salsa Company took up that whole block on the other side of the street. Yeah, 26 